Hey, everybody, welcome to This Week in Startups. We've got a great interview today with a really interesting cat. Dan Porter is the CEO of Overtime. They are a YouTube network of shows that they produce doing digital media. You've probably heard of things like that before. Think of it like an ESPN, but for Gen Z. But what's really interesting is they just raised a ton of money from a bunch of NBA players and other investors to create their own basketball league for 16 to 18 year olds who are, you know, foregoing their college and remaining high school eligibility in exchange for hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's really fascinating to talk to somebody the year they're starting their own sports league. And um, he's really uh, candid about a lot of the interesting things going on in the NBA, which has become, I think, the premier league in the world, you know, outside of uh, soccer. Of course, it's a great interview. It's a really fascinating uh, concept and pretty groundbreaking. So I, I had a I had a blast talking to him. This week in startups is brought to you by SecureFrame helps hundreds of companies get enterprise ready by streamlining SOC two compliance in weeks, not months. Get two thousand dollars off your first year by going to secureframe.com/offer/twist. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twist and LinkedIn marketing to redeem a $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash this week in startups. I want to talk a little bit today about uh, the trend of the last 48 hours, which has been a, a, just a huge crypto dip and a Bitcoin crash. We, we knew this was coming. And it's it's been part of a process. And of course, if you've been in Bitcoin for any amount of time, you know that Bitcoin uh, hits highs and then comes back down 50 to 75%. We crossed the 50% barrier. Remember, we peaked somewhere in that 63k. Um, and then uh, 10 a.m. Eastern today, June 22nd, uh, most of the cryptocurrencies had fallen 10 20%. And Bitcoin crossed that psychological barrier of 30k uh, down 12%. And it hit 29k down 55% from its all time high in mid April, when everybody was tweeting at you, have fun being poor. If you don't buy Bitcoin, it's going to 250k. This is the nature of Bitcoin. My position has always been the same on Bitcoin. Great technology. Um, it's now become a bit toxic. And there will obviously be other technologies that will be better than Bitcoin. That is heresy to any of these Bitcoin maximalists, Bitcoin forever, Bitcoin dead enders, toxic Bitcoin uh, syndrome folks. Uh, but that is the truth. And what we're seeing right now is probably the result of, as I predicted, people going back to life, people this summer, uh, with the pandemic ending, largely here in the United States, and, and, and many countries in the West, probably a little bit of a slingshot or rubber band effect. They've been cooped up. Now they want to YOLO, they want to have the roaring 20s. That takes money. So if you want to go to Coachella, if you want to go to Italy, if you want to go to Miami or Austin and check out the scenes there, you're gonna have to spend some money. And that takes some time, time that you might have been obsessing about cryptocurrencies, NFTs, or even stonks. So people are now getting back to life and stimulus is ending. You've seen many states have stopped doing unemployment surplus uh, action to try to get people back to work. So as we rotate back to reality, 
Thank God the pandemic uh, coming to an end. Let's hope that continues. I think probably just people have less time for this. And uh, it's completely, completely possible that this will go down 75%, which would put it somewhere in that 15 to 20k range, which by the way, is five times six, seven, maybe five to seven times more than the previous low. So remember, it went up to that 1920k, uh, you know, high uh, in that famous holiday uh, time, whenever we're talking about Maybe that was 2018 or 2017 whenever we was talking about cryptocurrency and then it went down to 3500 and i was dunking on it saying hey be careful this could go to zero well 15 would be uh you know a really great new low as it were so uh we'll, we'll see this keep happening and obviously this has a lot to do uh, ethereum of course uh, also uh correlated and coming down a whole bunch and it looks like, uh, you know, 500 billion or so in lost market cap for Bitcoin. Of course, m much of this was paper gains. A lot of people didn't buy in at these incredible highs of 63k. Some some of those might be Bitcoins that are lost and, and nobody owns anymore or the wallets, people don't have the passwords for them, uh, or they were bought for pennies. So why is this all happening? Uh, as you know, uh, we talked a little bit about these uh, crypto miners coming offline. And, and that really is the story. And I predicted on episode 1220 back in late May, that we would see more regulation and that sovereign countries uh, would not give over their fiat currency, their control over currency to uh, just this random project, Bitcoin, or any random project, they, they just wouldn't give it up to anybody. And so of course, China has now escalated and said, we need you to stop mining in a bunch of different locations. Wangzhou based Fonghua International has told CNBC it is airlifting 6,600 pounds, 3.3 tons of Bitcoin mining machines to Maryland from China. And uh, this is going to be part of a larger trend where people are going to, you know, be moving these Chinese uh, mining clusters to the West. And as I said, you know, this crackdown in China would be very easy for China to do. And of course, naive kids said, you can't stop it. It's, you know, censorship resistant, it's resistant. How could you ever stop it? People could just, you know, memorize, you know, their hashes and, you know, their passwords in their brain. And, and there is a very simple way for governments to stop people from doing things they don't want. It's called police and the law and the justice system. And it could be a corrupt, you know, authoritarian government in one country, it could be a, a democratic one, and there could also be taxation. So in China, it's very easy for them to decide that a religion, it's very easy for them to decide that a new source, it's very easy for them to decide a region needs to um, behave a certain way, whether it's in Hong Kong, whether it's the New York Times, Twitter, VPNs, virtual private networks, where they'll put you in jail for five years, or the Uyghurs uh, for their religion being put in jail, reportedly millions of people, um, you know, involved in uh, torture, slave labor and re-education. Uh, in China. So these naive kids, you know, who uh, I mean, hate to be like, get off my my lawn, okay, boomer style here. But I watch this and I used to think, yeah, you can't stop BitTorrent, you know, and it's it's always going to be there. And it is always there. But you you might remember people were getting arrested for hacking movies and being put in jail. Famously, somebody hacked the horrible one of the horrible versions of the Hulk early on. And the person went out to jail. And they got, you know, all these huge fines. So uh, and that was in the United States in a country like China, much easier to do. So on May 21st, China's Vice Premier, Liu He, I hope I pronounced that correctly, proclaimed China needed to, and in quotes here, 
crack down on Bitcoin mining and trading behavior and resolutely prevent the transmission of individual risks to the social field. That's a lot of word salad there. Um, basically saying this isn't good for overall society. And we, as we all know, having a harmonious society is the foundation of China's philosophy of, of how to run the country. And so, uh, since the CCP announcement, the global uh, Bitcoin hash rate, you can think of that as like the processing power of all the miners put together, it's decreased by a third. And that indicates a large number of these servers, aka miners, computers, you know, racked, uh, have been taken offline. And so let's just take a pause here. So what does that mean? Uh, well, you know, as I said on that episode, this is going to be short term bad for Bitcoin. Uh, it's going to make people scared. Some people have speculated it could cause problems with the blockchain um, and that we could have two different ledgers emerge and or, or chaos. Because remember, this is a technology managed, you know, by consensus. And as amazing as it is, we've never seen this happen at scale, at least not to the best of my knowledge, which listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on Bitcoin, uh, or the code base, as it were. But we have to wonder why is China doing this? This is a savvy group of actors who allowed this behavior for some time. And now they're not allowing it. Why? Why is this? Uh, why are they cracking down on crypto? Well, my friend Mark Jeffrey from Guardian Circle, which we're investors in, uh, and he's pretty much a crypto expert when it comes to all of the stuff he's been early and correct many times. China's going to launch their digital renminbi. And uh, they've tested it. And Perhaps, you know, according to him, they just don't want Bitcoin as an option. They just want it out of the picture. So step one, let's get rid of the miners. That will have an obviously chilling effect. If you're in China, and you see all the miners packing up, and you see the Uyghurs in jail, you see people selling VPNs going to jail, you see Hong Kong students being, you know, put in jail and Hong Kong turning over, you know, you're not going to uh, the average Chinese citizen is not going to disobey the government. In fact, they, they kind of feel like I think most people would agree in China, that most people want to have a harmonious uh, culture. This is like part of their ethos. So um, this digital currency that they're going to come out with could have um, exploding uh, features to it. And they've actually tested this. So basically, you get x number of dollars, you have to spend it by x date or it vanishes, which is great for something like stimulus. Imagine if we said to everybody with their stimulus checks, Hey, we're going to give you $1,000, but you can't sit on it. So we're going to give you $1,000. And you have to spend it by August 1st. Okay, great. Now we're really stimulating the economy. Um, or imagine your money just disappears based on your behavior. So you tweeted something wrong. Oh, we just locked your money. Does that seem far fetched? Well, if you can lock somebody up in a jail and torture them and reeducate them and force them into slave labor, I don't think you have a problem confiscating their uh, money. And, uh, you know, like maybe you do a search for Tiananmen Square and you lose your money, <laughs> or you lose some of your money. There, there's all kinds of really interesting things you can do with programmable money to shape how people behave. Maybe you tweet something <laughs> positive, or you make some great contribution to society, like that Black Mirror episode, the famous Black Mirror episode where people are being judged by their behaviors and their ratings uh, by other people, and you move up and you get that social credibility. So this is really dystopian stuff. And so that's probably a big part of this. But got to be some other angle here. You know, I, I think China is thinking in a very long arc, they're very strategic. And if they're going to ban Bitcoin, essentially, 
uh, they've obviously banned mining, banning the use of Bitcoin, owning Bitcoin. Uh, there's got to be a reason. And the digital renminbi is one. Other people might think it is about energy usage because they don't want to have this excess energy being used. My friend Pomp, Anthony Pompolano, he said he thinks this is a huge mistake. His quote, China has chosen the path that will become more obviously self-inflicted wound while simultaneously handing a large nonviolent victory to Western superpowers, the ultimate gift uh, to the US. I, I think that's, you know, a Bitcoin maximalist position here. They are not dumb. There's something else going on here, I believe. Maybe China wants to destabilize the US. So they're giving all of this mining and all of this money to other places to maybe make US miners stronger, which would then create more chaos in the United States and devalue the USD. And that's, I think, what America has to contend with, which is, if Bitcoin does become the standard, and the USD is weaker, that's not good for America. Uh, it might be good for personal freedom, it might be good for, you know, portable money, it might be good for people who are doing shenanigans with their money or behaviors that maybe are not uh, as legitimate. But, uh, you know, the United States really does want to be the global standard for money, and it does not help them. So we'll find out over time what China's real motivation is here. But these are very deliberate, strategic, you know, and, and on the margin, sinister uh, individuals, they are running an authoritarian communist country that has millions of people in concentration camps. If they're doing something like banning mining, it's for a reason. And we will find out over time what that reason is. Okay, now for the interview. Look, you probably keep hearing about SOC 2 compliance. And you might think, is this really relevant to me? Well, if you're targeting any large enterprise as a customer, there are all sorts of data privacy and security measures that you need to have buttoned up to close those deals. And you don't want your engineers taking time out to do this stuff. And you definitely don't want to hire a third party auditor. No joke, getting SOC 2 compliant can take months, and it costs a ton. That's where SecureFrame comes in. SecureFrame helps hundreds of companies get enterprise ready by streamlining SOC 2 compliance in weeks, not months. And they monitor over 40 services, including AWS, GCP and Azure. SecureFrame will continually collect audit evidence, run security awareness training, manage vendors, infrastructure, and more all automatically. On average, SecureFrame customers save 50% on their audit costs and hundreds of hours of time. Their team of compliance experts and auditors are happy to help answer any questions you might have and give you advice when you think of compliance don't get stressed out just think of secure frame streamlined affordable and hassle free here's your call to action secure frame is offering two thousand dollars off the first year for twist listeners that's right two thousand dollars off your first year at secureframe.com slash offer slash twist that's secureframe.com slash offer slash twist for two thousand dollars off all right, next up on the program, Dan Porter is here. He is the CEO and co-founder of Overtime, which you can go see at overtime.tv. He was also the CEO, if you remember, uh, OMG Pop, which made the most amazing game that kind of defined gaming along with uh, Angry Birds and, and Fruit Ninja and some other early classics with Draw Something, which was acquired by Zynga for $180 million. Uh, and I think had a quarter million downloads in a very short period of time. Before that, in the uh, Web 1.0 era, he was the COO and part of the founding team at TicketWeb. And that was bought by Ticketmaster, 
for a staggering $40 million at the time, uh, a number that is completely quaint uh, in today's modern era of the internet. It's basically, Dan, everything we did in the 90s, and you just add two zeros, and that's the equivalent in 2020, which is to say, uh, when you and I started in the internet, there were only 10 million, 20 million people with connections, and then broadband was limited to people at colleges and maybe um, a handful of people at offices. Uh, but quite a journey it's been, has it not? It has. I remember uh, one of the things I did at TicketWeb, it was like 1998, 99, is I went into the basement of like the Bowery Ballroom and all these clubs, and I helped them install their DSL line <laughs> so that they could actually be connected to the internet at a decent enough speed so that they could enter their ticketing inventory and people could buy tickets. Hilarious. The gating factor at the time was internet connectivity. <laughs> and now we live in an era where people can pop up a 5G router uh, for 30 bucks a month. That is 100 times more powerful than the fastest connections that cost $5,000 per month uh, back in the day. Uh, you did yeah, a little we stint. Used to, we, used to, we used to have a call center for TicketWeb because people didn't believe that consumers would actually buy something on the internet. And so even though most of the volume they actually did buy on the internet, I couldn't close a deal unless I told them that we had a call center to take orders to. That's hilarious. And just thinking about that today, people are now, uh, 30 years later, buying non-fungible tokens, digital assets for hundreds to millions to tens of millions of dollars that are uh, not existing in the real world. We have now, uh, you know, come, I wouldn't even say full circle, but we, it has manifested itself um, pretty amazingly. So you started Overtime TV uh, back in 2016. What was the mission uh, of the company? So right when I started Overtime uh, with Zach, I was working at Endeavor, William Morris Endeavor, the big Hollywood talent agency. And I was running digital. So I was building kind of the first influencer creator talent department. Eventually, you know, we had, I think, almost over 100 different YouTubers and digital talent we signed. And anything that was digital, podcasting, virtual reality, influencers kind of came under my purview. And at that time, we bought IMG, which was the biggest kind of sports rights seller um, in in the world. And then WME became WME IMG. And I, I quickly kind of moved into sports as the digital guy. And in working in sports in, you know, 2014 uh, to 2015, I worked a lot with the different leagues because they were all represented by various talent agencies. And the leagues at that time were kind of getting hip to this idea that there was a whole generation of people out there who consume sports in a really different manner. So, so they were aware of a couple big trends. You know, uh, audiences in their teens and 20s were not watching three hours of a live game. Uh, they also liked to use social media. They didn't have cable. They didn't pay for cable. They had distractions. They could play video games. They could go on Snapchat. There were many things they could do. And one of the biggest ones was that Young audiences were, you know, in, in some sports like football, choosing their favorite team based on playing Madden rather than based on the city where they grew up in. And in other sports like basketball, kind of aligning with players and following players. If you liked LeBron, Miami, Cleveland, LA, that's where you moved. And those were really disruptive. It was disruptive from a, an audience standpoint in terms of 
you know, the ratings and television. And it was disruptive from a standpoint of how are you going to sell out your hometown arena in 10 to 15 years when all those people are fans of other sports or they don't go to live sports or otherwise. And so I kind of looked at that and I thought as somebody who is not in that demographic, wow, those are like, those are some pretty seismic shifts in audience. They kind of mirrored this idea that, you know, here I was representing all of these kind of YouTube stars, some of whom had much bigger audiences than the traditional talent that the traditional agents were representing. So you had a kind of that schism happening on both sides. And yet, uh, you know, what was going to fall in the middle? And I just thought, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity where somebody's going to come out and they're going to create an entirely new, let's call it a sports network. And I don't really call it a sports network anymore, but at that time it was easy to understand. It was easy to say, you know, you can imagine this is like ESPN. Imagine you dropped it on the ground and it broke into 50 pieces and we aggregated those 50 pieces and that's over time. Um, but it's for a totally different generation. And one of the interesting things to me as somebody who kind of studies all this is how much technology drives culture. So if you think about the early 60s, it was really AM radio and AM radio had sonic limitations. You know how it sounds. It's monophonic and otherwise. Uh, and songs were short. And all of a sudden you had FM radio and FM radio was like crazy and free form. And like guys would play the whole album. Like there were albums I grew up with where I knew every single song on the album because they played every song on the radio. And yeah. that was transformational. There would be no rock and roll music in the same way without FM radio. And I'd say there'd be no overtime and and no transformation in sports with all, without all the various social platforms. And when you go to overtime.tv on the web, it's a corporate website. It exists and it manifests itself as a YouTube channel or a series of YouTube channels. Am I correct? So, yeah. So the reason that we have a website is that when we do business development deals, people type overtime into their browser. So you yeah. have to show them something. Uh, I don't know what the traffic is. I don't personally go to the website. Overtime is 53 different uh, overtime branded, essentially, channels on on every platform, on TikTok, on Instagram, on Snapchat, on Twitter, on YouTube, uh, all, all over the place. And ultimately, kind of the secret of digital to some extent is that people like to follow something that's good at one thing. And that's very mm -hmm. different than a sports center type of mm -hmm. thing. Sports center is a very like older model of aggregation. It's like your kind of Yahoo homepage. And the fact is, if I don't care about baseball as a hypothetical, I don't want to follow an account that shows me some baseball and shows me some football. Like I want to make my own sports center, right? I want to go out and I want to aggregate the things I care about. And so overtime has six different verticals, basketball, girls, basketball, football, um, gaming, apparel and soccer, all with over a million followers. And they're all on different channels, but they're all branded overtime. They're called overtime. The talent has overtime in their name. So it's this kind of bear hug network approach to sports content that allows both intense concentration with what you care about, but a broader community as well. So the business of having uh, a network of channels across YouTube and other platforms, uh, pretty well established from Maker Studios and, 
and a bunch it's of other different folks. though make, yeah. makers like an mcn is basically where you go out and you find a bunch of existing channels sure and you essentially aggregate them at a massive scale and represent them and try to sell right. advertising you're making the content yes yeah, every channel we make a hundred percent of the content we launch the channel we own the channel and we don't sell it as an aggregate each one touches and activates audiences in a different way the thing I found super interesting is that you decided uh, in March, uh, and you, we must have decided before that, but you announced overtime elite OTE, and that you would start paying 16 to 18 year olds 100 to $500,000 uh, to forego their remaining high school and college eligibility and play in your own basketball league. Explain what this is. Yeah, so uh, and did I have that correct in my notes here? You did a great job. So okay. I'll kind of tell you what it is, and then I'll explain how we got there. So OTE, Overtime Elite, is a professional basketball league. We hope that if there's the NBA and there's kind of March Madness in the NCA, OTE will be the third leg of the stool. It'll be a massively popular professional sports league. Uh, and, you know, when we, we started Overtime, a lot of people were like, why can't you pay the kids who are on overtime? And I was like, I would pay them, but I can't pay them because they'll lose their eligibility. Mm. And through working with all of these athletes, I think we came to understand two things. From, from a personal model, the system that exists right now to become a professional athlete and specifically a professional basketball player, it, it's a monopoly. You go, you go to high school and you go to a D1 school, maybe you go to Kentucky or Duke, and then you go to the NBA. And Occasionally, someone like LaMelo Ball will go to Australia, but they have to, you know, hack the system to some extent. If you look at the, the NBA kind of top five players that they just released two days ago, three of those five players are international players. That right? was amazing. I did notice that. Yeah. Yeah. Giannis, was it Josic, Giannis, and The Joker, Luka? Giannis, and Luca, which yeah. means they were pros at 16. They never went to college. Um, they played professionally and they took, you know, similar to a soccer academy path. Mm. Uh, and so we don't have that option in the United States. And I think we felt like, look, going to college is awesome. And but there's no other option. And young players and their families were telling us, like, we want another option. Like we want another way to go pro. Like if you're a if you're an amazing violinist, you don't go D1 for violin to Kentucky. You go to Juilliard and you train and you play the violin and you perfect your craft. And that's true for acting. And it's true for a lot of things. It's just randomly doesn't happen to be true here. How much time and money do you spend integrating a bunch of different software products together? Let me guess. Way too much. Well, Odoo is here to help. Odoo is a suite of business apps that runs your entire company on one platform. They'll streamline your workflow to bring all that information together. Plus, Odoo's integrations eliminate repetitive tasks and data entry. If you only need two or three apps to optimize your workflow, well, that's all you're going to pay for. Odoo won't stick you with the bill for apps you don't use. And Odoo has an app for every business need. They offer 30 main apps that are updated regularly and over 16,000 apps from their active open source community. You can keep your books tight with their financial software. You can add their sales and CRM apps to help provide a clear and organized view of how you're doing as a team. And here's your simple call to action. Your first app is free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack. That's not a joke. $1,000 off. Go to odoo.com slash twist to check it out. O-D-O-O dot com slash twist. 
And the second thing they told us is we don't understand why like our kids know, you know, our young people know people who are big on TikTok and YouTube and they're able to make money from their skills and talent and they're able to make money if they make music. But for some reason, because they play basketball, they're not allowed to make money from the thing that they actually know how to do best. And so I think I feel like a lot of this is known, but we just saw this opportunity. We saw a need. Mm. And then we saw an opportunity in that we have over 50 million followers who are already watching these athletes participating, excited about that. And we were like, let's, let's start our own league. And let's I mean, pay, wow, that's such a crazy, ambitious concept. When does it start? It is a crazy concept. And it is an ambitious concept. It starts this September. We already have uh, five or six players signed up. We have how many teams you know, will it be? So we will have three to four teams Got it. Uh, that will play each other internally. And then we will also play other schools and we will go to Europe and play. So we'll have kind of internal competition and we'll have external competition. And then over time, uh, we'll continue to grow. And all of those players have a unique opportunity because on the kind of input side, they all get a six figure salary. Um, they all get health insurance. They get kind of downside injury protection insurance. They get our, our coaches, Kevin Ollie, who won an, one of four black coaches to win an NCAA tournament title at UConn. We have a massive coaching, uh, attribute. They get a full education. They graduate from high school. We have like an incredible education platform out there. My, my background is I spent the first 10 years of my career working as a public school teacher and in nonprofit education as one of the founders of the Teach for America program. So I bring a lot of kind of experience to that. Uh, and ultimately, the other thing is that one of the things that was interesting to me is, as we kind of started to talk to players around the country was this idea of sports science, right? And prehab. And there's this thing in the basketball world, LeBron James spends a million dollars a year on his body. And that's why he can, you know, be. Yeah, that's why he can be LeBron James yeah. at 36. It's incredible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and the fact is that what I think what we found was that there was this tremendous desire for elite nutrition, elite training, sports science, what they call prehab, which I learned about, but that it's not equitably distributed like a lot mm -hmm. of things in this country. And if you happen to grow up in a certain neighborhood or you don't have enough money, you don't get access to that. And if Got you're it. rich and you go to a certain school, you do have access. So the idea to take some of the best athletes who don't have access to that and bring them here is huge. And I'll tell right. you like a silly anecdotal story about this is we went to scout this player and he was, a, he was you know, he's 17. He's, he's excellent player. We're thinking about signing for the league and his finger got dislocated while he was going for the ball. And he came over to his coach and his coach said, well, the doctor doesn't come for three more days. So let's just tape it up and we'll wait till he comes oh. and then we'll fix it. And, and our, our scout literally said to me, he's like, I almost went over there and just, you know, put it back in myself <laughs> for him. And yeah. the idea that, that the, these folks are coming to play professionally for, for our entertainment and for their careers without that level of support is huge. And then I think the final thing is we all know the story about the athletes who go pro and they lose their money or they mismanage sure. their money. And, and they don't have that. And so we have an extremely robust financial literacy program or focus on mental health. And so you have these incredible inputs where these young people are getting essentially the Juilliard of basketball. They're getting paid. And you have this output in which our audience gets to watch all kind of their version of, yeah. of superstars um, and playing. We're building our own arena. It's located in Atlanta. 
Um, wow. They'll live in Atlanta. They'll train there. We'll have our own 2000 seat venue that'll be finished in September. And then we're off to the races. Um, this would, if it did compete at all, because there's many players, so I'm not sure that you're exactly competing, but um, the typical program would be a player plays in high school, they don't get paid, they don't get all this elite training and mentorship uh, and prehab, etc. Uh, they might get some of that uh, would certainly be uh, a variable. And then they go to college, they also don't get paid in college. And so when someone like Zion or RJ Barrett or whatever decides to go for a year, uh, or sometimes two, I guess, uh, in some cases, they're basically taking a year to showcase themselves, maybe get a little bit better, uh, get some brand recognition, get some reps in, but then they don't get paid and they have a huge risk that if they were to blow out their ACL, they could have no career. Yes. So a, there's Am a I huge right risk. in terms of my understanding. You're correct. Well, there's a couple things. A, you're right. There's a huge risk. B, they don't get paid that we know, but we don't know that they don't get paid in other ways. I mean, there's... Oh, right. Know, there's, there's always been, been these... Uh, there's been federal investigations. I don't know. I'm just saying that, you no, know, no, that, people talk pretty, about that type of stuff. It's pretty well known that people would pay them under the table or something, or maybe pay an uncle or an aunt yes. or a cousin, you know, some money, and then it might get chopped up. Yeah, but basically, and, the NBA doesn't take players before 19. Is that correct? Correct. So that's that's why the, the one and done rule is there. And then I would say that the other thing is that, look, the goal of any college coach uh, is to win the NCAA tournament or to win their division. It's not necessarily focused on the preparation of these athletes. And the best coaches can do both. And, and, and there are many fantastic coaches who send highly talented players um, and, and college is a great experience. The reality is for the players who go for one year, the, the day the tournament is over, they're off campus. They're barely on campus for five or six months. So I, I can't argue that they're getting an incredible education. There's a, there's a, there's a large amount of risk for them. Um, and, and what they were telling me and our team was like that, that it's just another hack of the system. I don't think college basketball ever started. Nobody wants to be a fan of Carolina or wherever you went to college, Gonzaga or Villanova, and have different players every year. Like the goal was actually people went to college and they were student athletes and they they played basketball, not they cycled through in this way. Um, and, and now you have an additional thing where there's so much transferring. I think something like a quarter or, or a third of all NCAA Division I basketball players applied to transfer this year. Mm. So if a third of people left your company in one year, your investors would say to you, yeah, it's crazy. is that is that really a good good fit or not? Um, and you're taking people from the age of 16 to 18. Am I correct? Yeah, so we're our, our kind of sweet spot is 11th grade, 12th grade. And and we have, you know, we just signed a player who's going to be in the draft next year. So he's 18 to 19. And, and he's waiting for that space. In between. And, and that was uh, a player you signed, I think it's Gene Montero. Am I correct? Jean Montero. Yeah, he's Jean from Montero. $500,000 you're paying him. He's from the I can't comment how much we're paying him. I can oh. say that there's, there's lots of things. Correct? That, there are lots of things that are in the press. Some are ah. correct. Some are not correct. Um, and that's Maybe true for us. Maybe it's a two-year number, yeah. And I think it's true for other programs. But he was actually kind of a prototypical player because he, he played professionally in Spain previously. Um, and we think he's going to be a lottery pick. We're excited to work with him. And the, the most interesting thing is you talk to the younger players who are coming into the program 
and you talk to them about the first B, which is basketball, and they talk to you about the other two Bs, which are business and brand. Mm -hmm. And when I was 18 years old, I didn't know what business was, and I definitely had no idea what brand meant. And these players are locked in on building a, a career and a business around themselves, and they're looking at KD, and they're looking at these other athletes that have done it. Um, and I think it's part of the, part of the reason that they're connecting with us uh, to, for, for some how, how are you going to make money? Because you're only going to have these players for one, two, or three years, I guess, at max. Yeah. So uh, our, our revenue model looks a lot like a pro sports league. You kind of have three drivers. Uh, one driver is brand partnerships. And so... You can watch an NBA game and you see that you see Kia and you see mm -hmm. State Farm and, Great. and you advertising see all sponsorship. Folks. Got it. Yep. And it's it's different than media because it's on the jersey or it's on the floor. So it's not transactional media. Totally. The second, yeah. the, the second is you have group licensing. We will have a trading card deal. You'll be able to walk into Target or Walmart and buy trading cards of these players. We'd love Beautiful. to do a video game deal. And then the third is we want to develop media rights and, and media rights in sports, as, as you know, as a sports fan, are gigantic. I mean, the NFL, Amazon paid the NFL a billion dollars for Thursday night football. Amazing. Um, and, and, and that's a, a highly advanced product that's light years uh, ahead of us in terms of history and legacy and fan base. But look, if we can get to 5%, 10% of that over time, because people want to watch this and they want to buy the media rights. And we want to build something global from day one, which is why we're signing international players, which is why we will go and play in Europe. We think that that long term, that's a big opportunity. We all know marketing budgets don't grow on trees. The good news is right now, LinkedIn is going to give you a hundy, a hundred dollar credit towards your first ad campaign. Now, why should you use LinkedIn? Well, over 78% of business to business marketers rate LinkedIn as their most effective social media platform for reaching their objectives. Well, you know why there's over 62 million decision makers on LinkedIn and they mean business. Now, imagine you're going to launch a new marketing campaign. It tested well. The team's happy. Everything is going according to plan except for that one thought in the back of your head how do i ensure the people i want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message well the answer is linkedin when you market on linkedin you reach people who are ready to do business which means your campaigns will work as hard as it can as soon as you launch it linkedin means business business means linkedin you know that it's that simple and here's how linkedin marketing stands out they have tools for brand building and lead generation you can target professionals down to their job title company name and location. You can engage folks you already know based on previous site visits or outreach. Do business where business is getting done every day. Get a hundred dollar ad credit towards your first LinkedIn campaign at linkedin.com slash this week in startups. That's right. LinkedIn.com slash this week in startups. No spaces, no dashes, no nonsense. LinkedIn.com slash this week in startups for the hundy. Go ahead and type those letters and get that hundy. Terms and conditions apply because they're giving you a hundred bucks. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Okay, there's been a lot of talk about making the game more interesting. Obviously, NBA experimented with the play in tournament, much to some people's chagrin. I loved it. Fans loved it. Players, perhaps not as much. Uh, but it added these wonderful, great, I guess, one, two, three, four extra games that yep. were awesome uh, to watch and really added some excitement the week before. And of course, the four point uh, play <laughs> is something people have discussed and other rule changes. Now you're dealing with players in the start of their career. So adding a four point play, I, I, I could think about that two ways. Well, there's nobody who 
doesn't have uh, the ability to take that risk on without the fan base getting upset and you're ruining history and yada yada. What about all the statistics and how this is going to change that? So will you have a four point play or other innovations? We will definitely have some innovations. But again, we're we're training players for the NBA and that's their journey. And I think as a business, independent of whether overtime was doing this or not, for any business in this space, there's a line between, you know, speeding up the game and between what's being considered a, a gimmick to some extent. Got it. And so you I think the four I, point I, play specifically is a gimmick as a fan of basketball yourself? Um, I think that there are other things that you can do that are not about adding more points. I think nobody likes all the fouling that happens in the last 10 seconds of a game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that how would one get rid of that? I'm curious. Is there has there been a proposal that's been given to the well, NBA or there, other places that's public? The, yeah. There are, there's another proposal. I'm, I'm forgetting what the name is, but they, but it's was developed by just a regular guy where, you know, you would add a certain amount and the first team to hit a certain point level ah. with te- like would get there. And so there'd be less fouling. Um, wow. I, I think there's a couple things to think about though, is that let, let's imagine the court and the game. There's some innovations there you can do. I think you, you know, if you go, if you play in AAU basketball tournaments or like soccer, they have a running clock. And so mm. it just keeps going because there are no television timeouts and stuff like that. So y- you can do some things there to speed it up. You can, you don't have to play full NBA, you know, quarters. So it's a 48 minute game or other things. But I think there's three other areas where you can also add value to the game. One is how the game looks and feels. Mm. Uh, it's a, it's a very high quality product. I mean, the NBA is, is amazing. Yeah. They've been trying yet, some new camera angles this year. Yeah. I don't know if you saw and so that. you've got. Terrible got, use of the uh, digital SLRs, which they couldn't get in yes. focus. I mean, yes. I was like, come on, guys. You're, you've got the subject blurred and the background crisp. It's the exact opposite of that camera supposed to work. Yeah. But thank you for trying. <laughs> I, I did see that. The, pr- the problem with depth of field is it's terrible for motion. And so the, NF- the NFL has done a great job in the end zone around that. And so hmm. I, I, I think you have opportunities around that. You have opportunities around mobile devices. As we build our own hmm. venue, we'll try some different camera stuff to change how it looks. Oh, right. You're one venue. Yeah, so it's a show could, court. So you could embed cameras in any number of ways. You don't have to worry about having 30 teams. You're going to do some sort of Ron Robbins, et cetera. Exactly. We're going to have our own show court. So uh, wow. so that's one area of innovation. The second area is how the game is called. I mean, mm. I love Marv Albert. I mean, that, you know, I listen to that and it feels like I'm growing up. Yeah. But I, I can also say it, it doesn't sound any different than the 70s and 80s when I was watching Dr. Yes. J and the Sixers or Howard Cosell or anything else like that. and astounding. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and it's great, but I think there's opportunity for innovation there. And well, I like think the, the Rucker th- Park where people are like sort of commenting and getting, walking 100%. up and down the court with a microphone. Yeah, oh, that's good. You have good basketball knowledge. Yes, Rucker, Dykeman, all those. It's so fun. I've been to those. It's crazy. It's lit. Higher people energy are, level. Yeah. yeah, and we're we're building our venue on the second level of our venue. There are no seats. So it's almost more like a nightclub and there's a balcony and people can stand around and you can create a vibe. And I think the third area is what is the role of the fan? And so right now, the role of the fan in any sport is basically to watch, buy apparel and to vote for the all-star game. Yes. And I'm not saying that the fan is going to text the coach in the huddle and being like, you should let 
you know, Ben Simmons inbound to Embiid rather than vice versa or whatever. But I do think that there's going to be a way for fans to have a, a somewhat higher level of participation. And I think we'll try experimentation around that. And I think and obviously, I think you're telegraphing with that what we're seeing in a lot of the uh, wagering apps where maybe you could, the audience could vote what play should be run or who's going to score the next point or what, you know, who's going to win the game or whatever. But it keeps you on your phone and engaged in the game, even in a blowout, or, you know, just increases engagement, right? Yeah, I think you want a positive experience for the players at the core, but you want you want to experiment and try different things for the audience to be involved. And, and some of them are going to be amazing. And some of them are going to flop. And, and mm -hmm. that's okay. That's the nature of the startup. And, and then I think, ultimately, um, you know, you're going to try some stuff on, on court. And then I think you've got really almost like two products. If, if you go, if you go to YouTube and you look for overtime takeover in two years ago, we did our own event. We rented a venue in Brooklyn. We built our own court. It was a warehouse. It was three on three. It was like crazy hype, dunk contest, all of those things. Um, and I think that. You see it at halftime at the All-Star Game, although oftentimes not all the top players want to participate in that. And, no. and I, I honestly think that if it were a dunk exhibition instead of a contest, the best players would have less to lose. So they would yes. participate. But there's no reason ah, that you need true. to expose yourself at, at that level. So you tend to get a lot of guys who aren't even starters who are just hungry for that exposure. But I think you've got a balance between traditional games and and those types of things that can be be more fun and can be more showcases. Um, and so I think it's figuring out what what those are too. But there's no doubt that if our audience has grown up watching a lot of highlights on Instagram, you want to work backwards from there. And and at the end of the day, if you sign great players like for everything else you do, if you have really talented people on the court, like when you watch. Kyrie or Harden or any of those guys get down and dribble between their legs and they're about to make an incredible move or Trey Young or Steph Curry or anyone else like that. It's an incredible product because they're great players. And so I think that we never want to be like a bad version of the NBA. We want to get the best players and we want them to play at a high level. There would be uh, for you to uh, sell franchises and do what you know, the uh, ABA, NBA, etc. have done, you have Alexis Ohanian and some other folks uh, who are owners of other uh, sports teams or investors in other sports teams, you got Carmelo and other folks as investors. Uh, are you gonna have 20 teams and let us buy uh, our own teams and uh, I could be a team owner? It's a great question. Uh, the honest answer is, uh, I haven't got there yet. Got it. Like, I, I think that when you look at the traditional sports models, so we're not doing a touring model, for example, we're not trying to come to your hometown and sell out a stadium. We're not making money from beer and hot dogs. I think that it's like a startup it, from our space, from the tech space, you kind of look at all of the things and you're like, why do we need all of these things? What's the difference between you know, five, five, eight years ago, an Uber and a taxi, the difference between me walking out and it just pinging my phone and me taking $10 out and giving it to a driver, like, why does it have to be a certain way? And so I think we're looking to optimize around the things that allow it to be a successful business and look at many of the leagues that have spent a lot of money and gone out of business um, and, and, and make decisions. So it, it's definitely possible. 
But I think having some level of control in the beginning while you're still, you know, people are still playing basketball, but you're still trying these kind of startup like innovations is probably the best thing. So if I'm interpreting that correct, maybe get a couple more revs on this experimentation and learn if that opportunity is there, that opportunity is there. Um, yeah, for sure. Look, I can't I couldn't have told you in 2016. When all we were trying to do, I mean, we would launch an app, which we shut down and then we pivoted and we launched an Instagram account. I couldn't have told you that four and a half years later, an Instagram account would, you know, cause us to raise $80 million and, and run a league. It's just a, you know, cause you do this as a process of innovation and we'd like a little space to figure out what that innovation is. Makes total sense. Now, uh, David Servants of Ezra, when it was, you know, a young person's ESPN, obviously now you've. Uh, learned, pivoted, or evolved, whatever term you prefer. Um, and I see a ton of NBA players. 6% of active NBA players are investors in overtime. Okay. So this then leads me to ask the question, what does Adam Silver and the NBA think of you creating clearly something they should have created? They did the G League. They had, th they called it the developmental league or what was the name before? It was the uh, D League. You're right. The D League, right? The developmental league, D League. Now it's the G League, yeah. and they have just absolutely mismanaged that. It's been a complete disaster for them, in my mind. They've tried to fix it and make it two way or something, but it seems like people are just not interested in it. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. And then you come along and you say, "Hey, we're going to do something innovative down here." Do they see you as a feeder and something positive, or do they see this and say, "Like, okay, this seems disruptive"? Because I'm looking at this and saying, "If you make something really entertaining and it connects with millennials." And the NBA, it cannot change because they have to be risk averse because they can't lose all the old people over 30 years old who are spending money and you can cater to Gen Z. Are they not thinking of you as, you know, the disruptor? And, and how do they feel about it? Um, I don't know 100% how they're thinking about it. I would say in terms of the G League as a developmental product, it's great, right? Alex Caruso, all these players who come up. I'm not sure that their intent was to make it a media product because they already have a uh. big media product. Um, and so I think it's given as a developmental product, it's strong. Nick Nurse came out of the G League, right? So you have coaches and you have players. Sure. Um, but it's clear that all the leagues are focused on our audience. And I would say we have four NBA team owners who are investors. We have 6% of the NBA players and Adam Silver came out at the NBA All-Star Game and said, you know, we're supportive of Overtime Elite because anything that provides more options uh, is good. And so is it competitive? Only in the sense that nobody can watch sports for 25 hours a day. So maybe some people are going to watch us. Some people are going to watch nah, them. I, I, I mean, don't, I don't think really you're going to cut into people watching so LeBron James or Trey. I mean, and, and his quote was very supportive, I would say. I yeah. think it's generally good for the community to have optionality, especially but I, I very would, solid yeah, people, so which he called you very solid people, which appears to be the case in OTE and our backing. Yeah, and so, so and I, I, would add, I would add to that. So, so, People love the NBA. They're going to watch the NBA. I think ultimately, if we if we deliver an amazing media product, that's great. They don't care about that. That's our business. But if we deliver players who are better trained, you know, smarter, we have more access to data about them. They're ready for professional play. That That's a plus for them, right? That's a plus for every team owner. That's what every team owner wants. I mean, mm. think about the draft process. 
Um, you know, when you talk to GMs and assistant GMs, it's actually incredible to hear these stories about, oh, you know, we thought about uh, drafting Jason and we brought him in for an interview. And in the interview, he looked at the floor the whole time and he did this. Couldn't make eye contact, whatever. He brought a crew with him that was disrespectful, whatever it is. You could blow the interview. You're going to teach people how to do that stuff and help groom them, mentor them for professionalism, which is also what the NBA has uh, tried to do in all of this as well. Yeah, for sure. And and the last thing I'd say is like, uh, this isn't like a direct answer question, but like uh, working with with David Stern was by far one of the most amazing parts of this journey. I mean, I, I know he was a tough guy to work with at the NBA and he had a big job and he didn't work at the NBA anymore. And he loved startups and he loved the energy um, and we learned so much from him. And I just remember like sitting in this room and he's like, what about this? And we're explaining the league to him. And then I would step back and I was like, I'm literally sitting in a room having a meeting with this guy who's like, with the third pick in the NBA draft. Yeah, exactly. And I just never, I, ne- yeah. I never stopped appreciating how amazing that was. And when we told him, we said, Commissioner, we're going to launch our own league. And he was like, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Like, I just spent 30 years running a league. Why do you want to sign up for that kind of Michigas? And, you know, by the, by the time, you know, before he tragically passed away, he was like, this is a good idea. Like, I get it. I get why this is needed. And I just think that even his saying that gave us so much confidence because I have unlimited confidence, especially in techs and startups, but we were in a new and different space, professional sports, and it, it really meant a lot to us. Okay, big controversy around um, quantitative self for athletes. Obviously, people are wearing Apple watches or rings, Fitbits, whatever. Uh, but now we have players who are wearing uh, this information, data being collected from cameras. Obviously, the data being collected from cameras team seems to have a reasonable right to that since it's out there on the court but some players don't want to have their heart rate tracked uh, and their effort tracked because (laughs) it seems too intrusive or their sleep other people are opting into it um what is your take on this and do you think that this could be interesting for the league to see people's heart rate live we've seen experiments with that um and, and other sort of uh quantitative self and metrics because obviously that does have to do with rest and recuperation as well we track how many minutes have been played but we don't track exertion heart rate as compared to the resting heart rate of the player etc so how do you have you thought about that at all yeah so i i understand the concern nobody wants their location tracked no one wants to be like oh i looked on my phone and you were at the club last night i can yeah. see it right here sure at the same time we measure how fast they run the 40. We know how much they can lift. Like mm-hmm. we do track data that's extensible that we have about all of the players. Um, and so I, I think my personal point of view, um, and I, I, I use whoop. Um, I've heard good things mine. about whoop. Do you like it? I, I love it. It's, it's yeah, super people interesting. People seem to be in the whoop. Uh, what do you like about it? People are like in this whoop cult where I talk <laughs> uh, about Fitbit or whatever. And they're like, get a whoop. Fitbit's garbage. And I'm like, well, Fitbit does um, break often. I would say a couple of things. One is that all of the products that have moved beyond actually trying to have a screen on your wrist as opposed to using your phone, I think are, are somewhat advanced, but it's very much, it's, it's a lot about sleep monitoring and about mm-hmm. recovery and, and measuring your resting heart rate and otherwise. And, you know, not to turn this into a commercial for whoop, which I have no affiliation with, 
but we're just talking about you know it, yeah. they give you some kind of like red yellow green and and i know i i took the red eye back from california and i had slept terribly and whatever and i was totally in the red next day and at whoop at the company they tell you don't come into work that day and in fact i when reading i i like to exercise in my old man ways i won't yeah. exercise when i'm in the red because it's an injury prevention thing oh. and so the amount that it teaches me about the value of sleep and all these other things allows me to be a, a higher performer and i think every athlete wants to perform at their utmost best and they're but they're not thinking like oh i just ate this food that isn't good for me or i didn't get enough sleep or it's everyone tells you to get enough sleep but when you start to really see the data there and you see your breathing and you see how much stress impacts you it causes you to modify your behavior. And so I would say there's a, you know, there's a Venn diagram where the athlete and the team are aligned that they want the best. And I, I think it's less interesting necessarily about all the data that happens on the court. And it's more interesting about understanding recovery and sleep Absolutely. and everything else like that. Right. And I think the way you solve that is you say, I don't need to see that. It's like the same thing. I say, you don't, I'm not going to ask you if you're vaccinated to come to my office, but I'm going to assume if you're going to come to the office, you're going to get vaccinated. I haven't yeah. violated your privacy or anything else. I'm not going to ask well, I mean, you about your score. And also, if you're dealing with this cohort who wants to succeed yeah. and you're paying them and they don't have any other opportunity to get paid, it does seem like you would be uh, able to say to them, listen, we want to see you succeed. You should opt into this kind of intense, yeah. you know, uh, quantitative self stuff. It's you more about no teaching them. It's more yeah. about teaching them the value. So when when they're long gone from our league and they're in another league, they're able to 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 manage effectively. Let me ask you another question about contracts. I I don't understand how this works in the European leagues. When I watch soccer, uh, aka football, um, where people are under contract and then contracts that can be traded or bought out or sold, it all seems very weird to me. And they also do that, I think, for the NBA, for basketball, where you hear about, uh, you know, this team in Europe has to be bought out by the Knicks because they got Frederick Weiss or whatever. <laughs> you know, sorry for the uh, trigger warning to <laughs> Knicks fans, Frederick Weiss, <laughs> the dunk. Um, so anyway, um, would it not be amazing for you in terms of upside to say, hey, we're going to put these folks under contracts for X number of years? If they do make it, we get bought out by whatever team drafts them for 500 grand. And then that puts us net neutral or something like that. Have you thought about that? Because we are looking at investing in a lot of what's called ISA companies, income sharing agreements. I'm not sure if you're familiar, uh, but we invested in Meritas and we uh, have a couple of other investments, Lambda School, where, you know, people who provide the education, which is arguably what you're doing, uh, then get some upside in the future. And that's how you make money. Have you thought about that? Uh I've thought about it. And in fact, it goes one level further, which is in European football and in soccer, there are clubs like Ajax and Benfica, where they make almost all their money from selling player contracts. And then wow. there's other clubs like Barcelona, where they end up being net buyers, or they try to develop talent inside. My my general takeaway is that... Um, How much money do they make on it? If, if there was a hundred, if it was a $10 million contract, just ballpark do they get like 10 percent of that like an agent might or do they make a ton of money on that and how does that affect the player does the player split that or is it like the commission no no the they house? they they buy the contract and and the the player gets paid somewhere else they make tens of millions if not hundreds of millions so they of can assign a player that. for four million the player does great and they can sell that contract for 20 million and they get to 16 
they could sell that contract for a hundred million. Wow. Um, and the, they don't split that with the player. It's oh. like start. It's like startup investing. Oh my um, lord! Wow. The, the good. The good version. I, I, I would well, say no, it, it's different than startup <laughs> investing because we own a portion of the shares, a small portion typically, and the founders own it. So this is in a way like they own the rights to the player for all that yeah. time. And, you know, because we all have share prices, we all go up. If the share price goes from a penny to $10, we all win. So it's a little weird. Wow. Yeah, I, I would say I don't think that it is culturally uh, aligned with how we think about ourselves as a country. Perfect. I think that... Yeah. Uh, I mean, indentured servitude comes to mind. <laughs> yes, there are a lot of bad things that have happened yes. in this country that come to mind. Yeah. And so, A, I don't think anyone wants to participate in it for that reason. B, I don't think it's, I think it's culturally out of step. Um, 100%, and so it's yeah. not, it's not something that we would do. Uh, it, it would be interesting, though, you could own the rights uh, or participate in the rights to their likeness during the time in your league. In other words, if you had some amazing, you know, Steph Curry went to your league, uh, and then Steph Curry, you have his jersey rights for the overtime league, uh, you could be selling those forever or the rookie cards, etc. That could be amazing. Sure, you you can you can buy a um, Michael Jordan UNC jersey too. Yeah, uh, via oh, can Nike. You? Yeah. yeah, so and you can buy a Kobe Bryant Lower Marion jersey. So uh so yes on that front but i i think that the mission here is to empower and be partner with athletes of course and yeah. there are there are more avaricious things that one can do in the world but th those aren't really in our purview and and you get to start over so in fact if you did if you were able to open the window from 16 you know to 18 to say 16 to 20 or something um and and then eventually have teams and you had eight teams or 12 teams whatever it is um you're not in a position where you could not give some ownership or equity in the mothership or the individual franchises to the players. Because we're already we're already doing that. All oh, the really? first players have uh, options and equity. Wow, they got stock options in the league. Yeah. Wow. Can you? See, so this we're, is what we're, I, yeah. we're allowed to do basically whatever we want. I'll give you another example. Like we're working on, as I mentioned, trading card deals. What, what I, what I want to try to do. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how all the deals shake out. But you think about, you know, the trading card space and somebody buys a Mike Trout rookie card for $5 million. How much does Mike Trout get? He gets nothing. Mm, yeah. What, what we would love to do is say every rookie card, one of them gets put in a vault for the player. And if in five years that player is, you know, the next Kevin Durant and, and that card is worth a lot of money, like, that that player will own one of their own cards and they'll be able to do it. And I think when we talk to partners in the trading card space and the NFT space and all of those things, they look at us as kind of like a, a blank whiteboard and they're like, we can do whatever we want. You want to give mm. equity to the players? Fuck yeah, let's give equity to the players and, and give it. And I, and I will not only, I will add to that, like we are actually setting up, you'll, you'll appreciate this. We're setting up essentially like a venture fund where the players are going to be uh, the GP and where wow. there will be an outside LP. And so the players will get the carry. They won't have to put up any money. The LP will put up the money. They'll bring the deals. And then as part of the education, instead of math class, the players will sit and they'll review pitches and they'll vote and decide what they want to invest right. in. Well, let me know. I'll come speak. All right. As we wrap up here, and since we're both basketball heads uh, and you're so candid and honest, which makes you a great guest, I want to talk to you about wagering because you had David Stern on who was anti-wagering or being anywhere near Vegas, anywhere near gambling. Obviously, things have changed radically in just the last decade. 
where fantasy sports, gambling, wagering, you know, a, a better word for gambling, um, has become acceptable. Uh, now we have a federal mandate that people should be able to do this. Uh, the Supreme Court has made some decisions. You guys can look that up if you like. Uh, and Adam Silver came out a couple years ago and said, hey, listen, people are doing this. We should allow it. We should embrace it. It increases, uh, you know, people's engagement. So I'm curious your thoughts on that, you know, putting your league aside, just that amazing transition that happened from the Tim Donahue era where he was, you know, uh, in cahoots with the mob basically, you know, telling them who was going to officiate games and then people trying to get an edge on the game. If people can look that up, Tim Donahue uh, and that scandal. Um, and then all the way to now where they're going to put a team in Vegas, it seems. Yeah. So, yes, I, I, this is a great question. And I, I think and I care about this a lot. Um, so, first of all, to your point, independent of the league, we don't we don't do betting on minors or anything else like that. Look, sports oh, is there betting, like an ethical thing about betting on minors? Why would that? Uh, that I, I don't know. I weird? just think it's it's better to just separate them to start okay. with. Sure. Um, but in general, in sports betting, there is zero question that it is the single most transformative thing that it, that will will shape sports in the next 10 years. And in 2018, PAPSPA was overturned and sports betting was allowed on a state by state basis. And I'd make a couple points. Number one is that, you know, it's been legal in Europe for years. We're looked at as very prudish, right? We didn't allow Absolutely. gay marriage. Australia we allows it too, yeah. Yeah, we didn't allow gay marriage. We didn't allow people to smoke weed. We didn't allow them to bet. And I think we're getting to a point in the country where, and it's random, we allow them to smoke cigarettes and drink beer, but they can't do other things, right? Where we're like, adults over the age of 21 are adults, and they can make a decision about how they want to spend yeah, their money and their sure. time. And, and And I'd say the second thing is that... It, it, it's already transformational in Europe. It's part of the fabric. You know, I think in this country, you can't watch an NBA or an NFL game without seeing all the sports betting companies all over it. It's, it's, it, it, it becomes of a more effective form of direct monetization in, in, in a way than actually even subscription and, and brand yep. revenues do. Um, I think it's been, it's, I've heard people discuss that, you know, the biggest sports, platforms in the world are going to be bought by betting companies like someday yeah. we're going to wake up and somebody's going to buy espn and it's going or to be ESPN part of will buy yeah. MGM or they'll merge it makes sense yeah. i mean look what happened with barstool and um whatever pen gaming. gaming yeah i mean yeah what a brilliant combination yeah and so i i would say that it, it's transformational it's interesting it's fun i think the things that i it, it, it's going to be a huge focus for us and and the reason that it's a focus for us is is twofold one is the interesting thing about sports betting is we all have opinions right like oh katie's gonna go off tonight no way the bucks are gonna take them sports betting is just a way to back up your opinion at the end of the day and if you think about how bad comments are on the internet and how toxic they are you don't have to back up anything you can say whatever you want this is actually in a way it uses money as a signifier to talk about that conversation and, and to show what you know. But I'd say the second thing is that I think, look, we come from an era where sports betting, you're, you're thinking of a, guy, a bookie, a guy with a cigar, uh, yep. you know, some kind of degenerate gambler and everything else like that. And the reality is, is that almost a quarter of sports bettors in this country are female. And on top of it, sports betting huh. is a highly, highly social activity. And so I can go into my office 
and I can find the 10 guys all put their money, all chipped in $5 and bet on the worst horse in the Kentucky Derby because they wanted to talk about it all day when they were at their Kentucky Derby party. Our guy's going to hit. We're going to go big. And I think what you find is there's a tremendous amount of social activity where it's almost like going to a game or going out to dinner. A, a bunch of millennials are pooling their money and they're doing something that's interesting and fun to them. And they're doing it because it brings them together. I'd say like there's there are very few people who sports bet who do not have a group chat with all of their friends doing the same thing. And I think that's very similar to the ethos of overtime. Like we have really focused on community, on discussion. And I think there's no, there's no real, Barstool's done an excellent job. And outside of them, there's no real lifestyle brand in the space. It tends no. to be very transactional. So I'm really excited about that opportunity. And I think it can be done in a responsible way that treats adults be. as adults. And I think it's going to yeah. transform the nature of sports in this country. All right. Final question. Uh, big three is, I, I don't know if they're successful, but they seem to still be operating and they seem to have hit some cultural zeitgeist. Obviously, they're doing older players and letting people relive the 90s and, you know, some players they loved, but it is see does seem to be a very innovative new format and they seem to have combined music, going to a location and a music festival, kind of like uh, it feels almost to me like the All-Star Game uh, as a, a sort of default, it's it's a cultural fun thing to do. So what what do you see in the big three that gives you hope that you can make a sustainable large business? And are they successful? Educate me. Um, look, I, I'm, I, I, I don't want to be in the position to comment on anyone else's league. I don't I don't yeah. know if they're successful. I've never watched the product. All I know oh, is okay. that Ice Cube is involved and yeah. I, don't, I don't really look there for inspiration. I'm way more interested, I would say, in what happens in esports and what 100 Got Thieves it. and FaZe Clan do and folks mm -hmm. like that. I also think that there's an element um, to overtime, which is you want to know who's next. It's mm -hmm. like you want to know what that band is. You want to know yes. who that rapper is. You want to know who that young director is and you want to follow that trajectory. And that's really where we carve out our lane. But I'd say anybody who's trying anything different and innovative is getting some level of traction because I believe that this generation of audience is far more open-minded about what sports is, about what music is. You know, I, it's like, oh, is it a movie? Because it was on Netflix and it wasn't in a movie theater. And the answer is, I don't care. It was dope. I loved it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and so I think you're going to see a lot of people do different things. And, you know, I think the biggest cautionary tale is you, you don't want to be a bad version of the NBA because the NBA is a great product. you got to carve out your own lane. And I think for us, we already have 50 million followers and we reach 100 million people every month. And so to start something from scratch, but where you have a built-in brand and audience, I think is where there's a huge upside. And there's no doubt that basketball is the sport that is most firmly located in culture, right? Every rapper wants to be a hooper and vice versa. Uh, you got the tunnel, you got all those. So it's an amazingly fun place to play because what does every entrepreneur want? They want to build something that's culturally relevant. They mm -hmm. want to know that people love what they made and that it's changed their life and it's in the zeitgeist. And I think being around basketball, being around young athletes who are kind of the next social media generation being in Atlanta, which is like an incredible hype city and everything else like that. That's that, you know, that's where we want to be. Awesome. Listen, continued success. You've been a great guest. Thanks for being so candid. I wish you great success on it. Let me know when I can buy a franchise. I'm, Thank I'm, you, I've Jason. always wanted to own the Knicks. 
seems to be getting harder and harder no matter how hard i, feel I, how hard I yeah. work <laughs> I feel the you. price keeps going up i my net worth and the knicks value seems to be the spread keeps getting wider not closer and <laughs> closing so you. so you'll take the <laughs> under and one day you'll take the over yeah exactly all right listen continued success and we'll see you all next time on this week in startups bye bye <laughs>